Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I ask you that you would turn, to your, turn, turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We've been in a sermon series called God With Us from the book of Exodus. And so um, I want you to turn with me there. Um, but before we um, get, get there, last week at the outset of the sermon, we had a, a, a strong Sunday last, last, uh, last Sunday. It was great, man, and it was amazing, man. I, I asked at the outset that, that if you were in church, that you would just not go through the motions, that we would just lean in if, if, if you would just... For those, for these moments that we're together, just free your heart to, to, to hear from the Lord and let him uh, work on your heart. Grab a Bible, actually turn through the pages of it, actually study it and, 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 and let God, not you just read the scriptures, but let God read you. If, if maybe for someone leaning, leaning in closer today is maybe you, dare I say, take one note today. Maybe, maybe today uh, you, you take some notes. Maybe you um, pray while, while, while you're um, hearing the word of the Lord and, and just allowing God to speak to you. Maybe you say today, you know what, this word is not for my neighbor. This is actually for me too. And, and so I, I just want God to grow us and for us to lean in closer and see what God wants to say to us today. Amen. Am, y'all, am, am I by myself? Amen. Y'all, are y'all here today? All right, all right. So Exodus chapter 15, and I, I want to say this before we read the Exodus, the Exodus, uh, an exit or, or departure. When, when you read the book of Exodus, I want you to think exit, departure, as if they're leaving somewhere. And so we think about the book of Exodus, the, the, the children of Israel's exodus from Egypt, they're in Egyptian bondage and slavery. Their exit from Egypt is a forecast of our uh, exodus. It is a forecast, a foreshadowing. It points towards something. These are real people in real history, in real time, who are exiting uh, slavery and bondage, uh, Egyptian slavery, bondage, and a stronghold, and God has freed them and, and let them go free. And so it is a foreshadowing of our exodus. But our exodus wasn't from Egyptian bondage. Our exodus was from enslavement to sin. And we were set free, set free through the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so we see their exodus. It should remind us of our exodus for those of us who are in Christ. Christ has set us free, and we have exited from a life of sin, and now we've been free to serve Jesus. And so we see this. It's not just their story. It is our story. It is not just their God and their story. It is our story and our God. Their God is actually our God. And so this is not just some some cute story that the kids read about in Sunday school or the kids read about in children's church. These are real people in real time, but it points forward to our exodus in our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord. And so what has happened is God has saved these people and God has led them somewhere. They're actually got an ultimate destination nation called Canaan, the promised land, where God made a promise that he would bring his people into a land flowing with milk and honey. I need to tell you this to set the stage. He's bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey, and God, before he takes them directly to where they're going, God leads them into a place called the wilderness. And so God takes them on a detour. God takes them on a detour, and we've all at some point have had to detour. You've had at some point your GPS 
taking you somewhere, and because of an accident or because of some construction, you had to take a detour. And I hate taking detours because I'm one of those directionally challenged people. I can't never figure out where I'm going. If you take me to a neighborhood, I'm not paying attention. I'm not going to know how to get out. And so you, you've all, we've all experienced before. We, we've kind of got lost before. Some of us can remember before it was on your phone, you used to have to print out the MapQuest. Y'all are like, really? Yes. And, and so we hate detours, not just in traffic, but God sometimes takes us on detours in our lives. We, we, we have plans to get to an ultimate destination, but what we don't realize is God typically doesn't do direct flights. God typically takes us on a detour. And, and I know we hate detours in our real life because detours cause us confusion and frustration. But let me tell you this, when God takes us on a detour, it is not to confuse you, it is not to frustrate you, it is not to upset you. But when God takes us on a detour, God's in God's economy, God's detours are by design to take you deeper in your relationship with him. God's detours are on purpose. Get that in your mind. Maybe you are not what you thought you would be at a certain age. Maybe you thought you would have a certain job. Maybe you thought you would have a different relationship status. Maybe you thought you would have a certain amount of money. And none of that has gone according to plan. Maybe you find yourself in a city that you had no idea that you would be in years ago, but now you're here. And I want to tell you, if you're confused, if you're bewildered, if you don't know how it's all going to work out, God's detours are designed to take us deeper. Keep that in the back of your mind. It, it is okay. The most important thing is not that you're on a detour, but the most important thing is to know is that God is with you in the detour. God is with us. And so let's read Exodus 15, starting at verse 22. And I'm going to do something that you're, you're probably not used to. We're going to read starting in one chapter and read through the first 15 verses of the next chapter. So we're going to start at Exodus 15, verse 22, and we're going to read all the way through Exodus 16, verse 15. And it said this, Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what, what are we to drink? What, 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 are, what are we to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when Moses threw this tree into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statue and an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I afflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms. They camped there by the water, starting in verse uh, chapter 16, verse 1, the entire Israelite community departed from Elam. Now, mind you, when, when they were in Elam, they needed water to drink. Now they leave Elam and go deeper into the wilderness. God is leading them deeper into the wilderness. And here's what it says. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Before they get to the Canaan land, the promised land, God 
actually wants to take them to a place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God will show them how they are to be in a relationship with them. They're actually going to go to Mount Sinai before they get to the promised land. And so here's what it says. He says they were in the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. It wasn't that long ago that they had just parted the Red Sea. And the entire Israelite community complained again. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are each day gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, this evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard complaints about you. For, for who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, the Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against God. Then Moses told Aaron, hey, Go tell the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord. He's heard your complaints. And as Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came, covered the camp, in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were like fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. I want you to think like little frosted flakes, like little frosted flakes cereal, like little individual frosted flakes. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what, what, what is this, frosted flakes? They didn't say, that's me. What, what is this? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Let us pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word today. Lord, I thank you for your people today, God. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I, I pray today, God, that we would grow exponentially today. I pray, God, that we would grow by leaps and bounds in our service to you today, Lord. I pray that we would not just go through the motions. I pray that we would not think that this is cute, that this is for somebody else, that this has nothing to do with us. Or, 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 or I pray, Father, where, where we are confused, bring clarity. And ultimately, Lord, we want you to be glorified through our worship. We want you to be glorified through our studying, Lord. And so cover your people today, God. Cover your people. Father, for those who are heavy-hearted, I pray that you would lighten their load. God, God, for those who are broken by life, I pray today that you would be the Lord God who heals them. And Father, ultimately, I pray, pray your son Jesus will be glorified as we go deeper in your word and in our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated. My, my sermon series is called God With Us, but today our sermon title is Deeper, just, just Deeper. Our sermon title today is Deeper. 
And when, when I say deeper, I don't want you to think of some esoteric, mystical feeling, warm and fuzzies that, that you get, some mystical thing that's going to happen. But when, I, when, when we say deeper, I want you to think deeper in trust in God, deeper in obeying God, deeper and more intimate in, in our relationship with God. When we say deeper, I mean deeper in our personal relationship with him. When we think deeper, I want you to think intimate. I, I want an up-close and personal relationship with the Lord. Well, well you know what's happening in the story. Uh, last time we were here, we talked about the Red Sea. God did this miraculous thing for the Israelites. They, they came out of Egypt. God allowed or, or caused Pharaoh, their, their, their enemy and arch nemesis, to let them go from bondage that they were in for 80 years. They, they were in hard slave labor for 80 years, and the Lord caused Pharaoh to let them go so that they would be free to worship the Lord. They got out of Egypt, and, and, and before they could get further out of Egypt, they found themselves by the Red Sea. God caused them to camp right by the Red Sea, but lo and behold, their worst nightmare came true. What they thought they had got away from was about to tap them on their shoulders. And, and here's Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian army who were more numerous, more powerful, more well-equipped for war than the Israelites. They were hot on their tails. And so the Israelites are literally stuck between a rock and a hard place because they're not strong enough to fight the Egyptian army. And also their back is against the Red Sea and they don't know how to swim. And, and so they're, they're in this difficult place. And God says, I got a plan that I've had all along to show you that I am the Lord and to show the, to show the Egyptians that, that I'm the Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up this Red Sea. And I'm sure they said, you're going to do what? And he said, I'm going to open up this Red Sea. And so the Israelites gathered all of their belongings and Moses led them as they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. I want you to imagine this. God has caused the waters of the Red Sea to part, to split, and the waters are walled up on their right and on their left as hundreds of thousands, some believe millions of people, walk through a sea on dry ground. Nobody got wet as they walked through the Red Sea. And so this is the type of miracle that God did. On top of that, when the Egyptians came behind them, God caused the water to come back to its normal depths, and it drowned and killed all the Egyptians. And so they are able to turn around once they're on dry land and look and see God literally destroy their enemy. And so what is the natural and right response when God saves you, when God brings you out of something that you couldn't have got yourself out of, when God literally saves your life, when God makes a way out of no way, the right response is to praise God. And so we get to chapter 15. I didn't cover the first 21 verses, but when you get to the first 21 verses of chapter 15, it is literally a song of praise. The Israelites have gotten over uh, the Red Sea and on dry ground, and they are having a literal celebration. They are throwing a literal praise party right outside of the Red Sea. They are praising and singing to God because of God bringing them out through his salvation. God has made a way. And so I want to say this. They devoted 
and almost an entire chapter to singing to the Lord. They, they celebrated the Lord by singing. I want you to imagine hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people singing, cool in the gang, celebrate good times. Come on. This is what the Israelites are doing because God has done a wonderful work among them. God has saved them when they could not save themselves, but they are singing. And I want to pause to say this because I think this is good for us and this is practical for us. singing when we sing in church this is what we should do praise and worship is there for us to edify us and for us to glorify God singing is not a purposeless thing when we that we do in church to pass the time by until it gets to the main part which is the preaching that's not what singing is singing is not some add-on it is all part of the worship experience and some of us during the praise and worship time we stand there with hands in pockets eyes closed or eyes wide open and we don't participate. We don't sing the songs, even though they're up on the screen. But I want to tell you this, the people that are singing are not singing for your entertainment. They're singing to lead you in praise of God, because if God has saved you, your right response is to praise God. Right? And so singing is, ne- is necessary. Singing in the church should be normative. Why should it be normative? Because it's biblical. Singing in church is biblical. See, singing is so biblical that there's an entire book in your Bible called the Psalms. That's how important singing is to the life of a believer. And I just want to run through a couple of them. They're not on your screen, but you can take a note note if you want to. Psalm 95 says this, Psalm 95 and 2, let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. Psalm 150 Praise him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Well, how do I know that I have breath and I should praise the Lord? If you can do this, you should be able to praise God. And so this is not for the professional singers. This is not for the professional Christians. Singing is the right response to anybody that has experienced genuine salvation. So much so, when we get to the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul tells us this in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitudes in your hearts. The God of our salvation is worthy enough to sing to and to sing about. And and, and so this is what they're doing. They are are praising God, thankful that he has saved them. It is a right response. It's not about you being comfortable. It's about you doing what is right. What is the right response to a God that has saved us? Praise and gratitude should be the ongoing posture of the heart of a Christian. Every day, our prayers should not just be littered with asking God for stuff. They should be littered with thanksgiving. Philippians says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
There should be something that the Christian always has to be thankful for. If you don't have the money, you still got something to be thankful for. If you don't have the house, you still got something to be thankful for. If you don't have the promotion, you still got something to be thankful for. If you don't have everything you claim you want, it's still something to be thankful for. If you are saved, if you are headed to heaven, if Christ's finished work has applied to your life, then you have something to thank God for. We should all have a posture of thanksgiving. But the reason why we don't is because we have this human condition in that we battle with sin. And sin causes us to take our minds off the God of our salvation. And it causes us to subtly fixate our thoughts on our problems. And we go from thinking of the God of our salvation to thinking solely about ourselves. And so we don't think about God, something else will replace those thoughts. It happened to the Israelites, and it happens to us. that Their journey with God is a picture of our journey. Their story is actually our story. But because of sin, they went from singing about salvation to selective amnesia. For verse 15, the first 21 verses, they're singing songs unto the Lord. They went from singing about salvation to selective amnesia. At the first sign of trouble, right, right after God destroyed their enemy, that that was going to enslave them and kill them, right, right after God miraculously parted the Red Sea and brought them through on dry ground, they seemingly had just forgot all that God had done for them. This happens to us. We can get in this habit of complaining and, and, and being frustrated and, and grumbling against God, and we soon forget that God has saved us, that God actually doesn't owe us anything, that if God don't do another thing for us, he's already done enough. But we should be reminded of God and all that he's done for us. I, I want to share with you Psalm, Psalm 103. Verses 1 through 11. I want to share this with you. I love this psalm. This is one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 11 says this. My soul bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord. And here's the thing. Do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has dealt with our sins not as we deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. These are God's benefits towards us. Like there's always something to thank God for. But when we allow ourselves to be forgetful, we become ungrateful. We allow ourselves to be forgetful, we become ungrateful. And so here we find ourselves in chapter 15, verses 15 through 22, on the journey, on the way to the promised land, they are not going directly where they think that they are going. They, they, they have a purposeful detour that God has put them on. Th things that are not a part of their plan, but it's a part of God's plan. Th there's some things that have happened in your life that were not part of your plans, but they were a part of God's plans. 
And God's plan is not to destroy you, but God's plan is actually to grow you through the detours. I can't say that enough. And so one of the major stops and detours that they would take is a place called Mount Sinai where God would deliver to them the rules of a relationship. We know them better as the Ten Commandments. God, God is taking them to a place called Mount Sinai because God has saved them and God wants to be in a relationship with them. And so God brings them to, to this relationship, uh, to Mount Sinai, to be in a relationship, and he wants to give them these relationships, relationship expectations. If you're in a relationship with anybody, there need to be some expectations. Because if there are no expectations, then how will someone know how to treat you? Right, right? How will the relationship be fruitful if we don't know what the rules of engagement are? And so God wants them to be fruitful in their relationship with him. So he gives them 10 commandments, how they are to engage with God. And also, these are keys to human flourishing. You see the 10 commandments as just a bunch of rules to follow. But no, God sees them as an invitation to human flourishing. Can you imagine if no one ever stole? Can you imagine if no one ever murdered? Can you imagine if no one ever committed adultery? Can you imagine if no one ever lied? Can you imagine if no one ever coveted something from his neighbor? Can you imagine if we live in a world where no one did all of those things, we would live in a beautiful place. And so God prescribes this for us. And not only does he prescribe this for us so that we know how to be in a relationship with him and so we know how to flourish in this life, but also when he gives the tend to them, he's trying to allow them and show them how they can live on mission for God. So when the world sees them, when the nation sees the people of God and they see how they're living, they'll be like, man, something about them is different. So so the life God invites them to is not just for their own sake. It is so that they can draw the nations and point them to Jesus. And this is what God is trying to do. The detours are not meant to punish. They're meant to prepare. The detours are not meant to punish. They are meant to prepare. Whatever you got going on that you're dealing with that you didn't see coming and that you can't see the end, you don't know where this is going, the detour in God's economy is not to punish you, it's to prepare you. God is trying to prepare you for something. And the route that they'll travel The journey goes through a place called the wilderness. So when you think about the wilderness, I want you to think about the place of testing. That this is where God is going to test them. This is where God is actually going to grow them. God is going to bring them near. God is going to bring them near in the wilderness. This is the place of testing. And it it parallels with our pilgrimage in the Christian life. We are journeying through this land, pilgriming pilgriming through until we get to the place where we're with Jesus. And and we don't have to deal with any of this uh, anymore, but God is right now taking us through this life and he's teaching us and he's bringing us closer. And those detours are designed to take us deeper in our relationship with the Lord. And so God is going to test them. God is going to test them. Not to find out anything about them, because God knows everything. But he's going to test them so that they can learn about themselves. They are out of Egypt. But what God knows is, Egypt isn't out of them. I'm going to quit this job and get me a better job. And then you get the better job, but you still show up to this job late too. I can't stand my manager because they keep getting on me 
I'm about clocking out early. I'm getting a new job. Got a new job. My new manager. It was a honeymoon for three months. Now he's getting on me too. Because we get off at 5 and I keep leaving at 4.50. And at some point it has to dawn on me that it's not the jobs. And it's not the managers. What's happened is I left Egypt, but Egypt didn't leave me. And this is what God is doing through the detours. And could it be your detours are not designed to harm you, but the detours are actually designed to show you where you need God's help. And this is what is happening here in the text. The wilderness was not necessary for their salvation, but it was for their sanctification. Let me say this again. The wilderness is not necessary for salvation. Why? Because they were already saved. God already brought them through the Red Sea. God already brought them out of bondage and slavery. It wasn't necessary for their salvation. Their salvation was the work of God from beginning to end. It wasn't necessary for salvation, but it was necessary for sanctification. Let let, let me tell you about sanctification. Sanctification is the act of God's grace in the life of a believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the act of God's grace in the life of a believer through the work of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit works on our minds and our hearts daily to make us more like Jesus. And so we go through this process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. We, we love this Romans 8 passage. All things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then you stop reading. That's where you stop reading. But what is the purpose? The purpose is revealed in verse 29 of Romans 8, 29. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's ultimate goal in this life is not to make you rich, it's to make you more like Jesus. And this is what happens in the wilderness experience where the people become more like him. And so God doesn't just make us more like him magically. God tests us through life and sometimes apparent lack. He tests us through life and sometimes apparent lack. And God brings this about for Israel by testing them in the areas of their most basic need, in the area of food and water. God tests them in the areas of food and water. Look at chapter 15, verses 20 through 22 through 27. Here's what it says. Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of shore. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness. Hear this. They're three days in the wilderness. I want you to think desert, wilderness. They're not alone. They got animals with them. They got kids with them. They got all kinds of luggage and stuff that they are moving with with them. They're in the wilderness for three days, and they can't find no water. They came to Marah, and they saw the water. Ooh, there's some water. But the water at Marah was bitter. That's why it's called Marah. And the people complained to Moses, what are we going to drink out here? And he cried out to the Lord like a good leader should do. The Lord showed him a tree and he threw the, water, the tree in the water and the water became drinkable. Now you might say that's kind of crazy, but God has already been doing stuff with water. He parted the Red Sea. He turned water to blood before one of the plagues in Exodus. So God is doing things with water because he's the God of creation and God can do whatever he wants to do. And then what happens is the Lord made a statue and ordinance for them at Marad. He tested them there. Verse 26 says, here's what God said to them. 
if you just obey my commandments and do what's right in my sight, pay attention, keep, keep all my statutes, and then I'm not going to afflict any of the illnesses on you that I gave to the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by water. And so they left the Red Sea. They come to a place called Shore, and they've been traveling, and for three days they can't find water. And then when they finally see water and they taste it, the water is undrinkable because it's bitter. Don't you hate that? You fix your mouth ready for something, and then it don't taste like it was the first time. You ever go to a restaurant and it's like, oh, that was great. And you go the second time, you done talked it up. You want that same experience again. And you taste it like, ah, those those jumbo shrimp aren't doing what they were supposed to do. Oh, man, the coconut shrimp was so coconutty the first time. And now they're just, eh. You you ever had that happen to you? And they come, they think the water is drinkable and it's not drinkable. And they start complaining. They start complaining. They, they complain. Now, now, mind you, they're complaining. They're complaining to God. And I get it. Naturally, if I'm without water for three days, I'm going to complain too. They're like, oh, my God, we got kids with us. We got animals with us. We got a livestock. We, we need water to drink for us and for them. Like, if we don't get some water, we're going to die. So, so it's not just that the water was a disappointment that was bitter. Now it's actually a cause for panic. And, and mind you, th- th- these people have just seen what God did with water. And they're complaining to their leader about water. They're complaining to them. Yes, they need water to survive. Yes, the water is bitter and they need something to drink, but they start grumbling and complaining. The problem is not the question, what are we to drink? The problem is not in the question. The problem is in their attitude. The problem is not in the question. The question is fine. The attitude is off. Attitudes matter. The the, the verse doesn't say they ask inquisitively. Moses, what are we to drink? Oh, dear Moses, what shall we have for drink? Here's why the attitude is the problem. God literally just a few weeks ago turned a sea into a highway for you. God just a few weeks ago literally parted a whole sea for you to walk through on dry ground. God just demonstrated to you a couple weeks ago that he's the God of creation. Don't you think the least of your worries should be water? Don't you think the least of your worries should be about some water to drink if God just brought you through the Red Sea? If he just made water move out of the way to save your life, don't you think he'll give you water to drink to give you life? That they are complaining what God just a few weeks ago gave them and supplied their needs for. And here they are complaining. And we look back and we like, those Israelites, and we do the same thing. Everybody in this room can think right now of a moment when they thought it was it. When they thought, I don't have enough money. I don't have this. I don't have that. We don't know how we're going to make it. I don't know how this rent is going to get paid. I don't know how we're going to eat. I don't know how I'm going to pay this car payment. If I don't pay it, they're going to repossess it. I don't know how I'm going to pay this insurance. I'm going to be riding dirty. The police are going to pull me over, and it's going to be a wrap for me. Everybody's been there at some point, and you're sitting here today. You sitting here today, looking as beautiful as you do, is proof 
that you shouldn't have been complaining. You should have been praising. And this is what is happening. If you're thirsty, God can give you something to drink. If you're thirsty, he says, I'm the well that never runs dry. If your soul is thirsty, he said, come and I'll give you a drink. And I'm not just going to give you enough to wet your whistle. I'm going to let you drink till you are full. I never run out of water for you to drink. If the world has given you bitter water, he says, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you water that's not bitter. I'll give you water that's sweet. I'll give you water that gives you life and life eternal. And you can always drink from this water because I never run out of it. And this is what he's pointing out to him. And Moses has the right response. They complain. Moses starts praying. And God does something not blackish, not grown-ish, not mixed-ish. He does something God-ish. And he makes that which was bitter sweet. And this is what God does for us. And the Lord said this. You saw what I just did for you. So here's my conditions. The Lord made an ordinance and a statue for them at Marah, and he tested them there. And basically he says, if you're loyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. For I am the Lord who heals you. And what he's saying is, not that you won't ever get sick. He's saying, I want to afflict you with the diseases, the plagues that I gave to the Egyptians just a short while ago in order for them to let you go. He's saying that if you've been infected by the sickness of sin, I am your healer. And if you're saying, oh, God, God is saying, I'm your primary care physician. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I'm your primary care physician. And you might be saying, I don't need a primary care physician. I actually need a specialist for my problems. He's saying, in my economy, there ain't but one sickness and one disease and one problem. It's called sin, and I've already taken care of it. And so he invites them in, and, and he gives water to them in spite of their complaining. Now, I don't know how you grew up. <laughs> Complaining wasn't a recipe to get what you wanted. Complaining was not a recipe to get some more. But would you look at God and he gives them what they needed in spite of their complaining. And then, that, that, then you know, they walk off into the fairy tale and it's happily ever after. Not really. They go further into the wilderness. It's kind of one of those, if it ain't one thing, it's another. You ever had one of them seasons? Well, as soon as this gets fixed, this breaks. When you have enough of this, you run out of some of this. You ever had one of those seasons? And this is what they're in. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 16. It says, this entire Israelite community departed from Elam came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month that they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, God just gave them water. I want you to read verse 3 in the context of God just giving them water. I want you to read that in the context of God just turning bitter water sweet. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make the whole assembly die of hunger. Now the problem isn't water. The problem is food. 
and the entire Israelite community is complaining against Moses and Aaron. They're complaining against their leaders. And would you notice what they're doing? They're romanticizing their past. Isn't that just like us? To pray for God to bring us out of something. And he brings us out of it. And we look back thinking that it was better than it was while we were there. And we, we sure do come up with a case of revisionist history. See, back before I was saved, boy, you, boy, we used to, man, boy, we used to get it in, boy, it was so much, boy. Sometimes I just wish, boy, I wish we could go, man. But when you were there, you were miserable and weighed down and heavy burden and can't get out of your own way and kept messing up and kept making mistakes. And God sets you free and you have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to complain about where God has freed you from. And this is what's happening in this story. Because forgetfulness brings about ungratefulness. Forgetfulness brings about ungratefulness. And in the wilderness, a culture of complaining has set in amongst the people of God. Here's what complaining is. A com- complaining is a frame of mind in which one believes that when life gets hard, God is insufficient to deal with it. Let me say that again for the people in the back that couldn't hear me. Here's what complaining is. Complaining is a frame of mind in which when life gets hard, you don't believe that God is sufficient enough to deal with it. And so they complain. And oftentimes our complaint is never really about what we're complaining about or who we're complaining to. Look at what Moses says. They complain and Moses says, in the morning you'll see the Lord's glory. He heard your complaints. And he says, why are you complaining to me? Who are we that you complain to us? Moses continued in verse 8, the Lord will give you meat to eat this morning and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard your complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. This is wise counsel that Moses is giving us. Because oftentimes when things are going wrong in our lives, we complain with whoever's in close proximity to us. And sometimes you're complaining to your spouse, you complain to your kids, you complain to your parents, you complain to, to, your, to your boss. You aim your complaints, at, your complaints at all of these people that, as if they had something to do with what's going on in your heart. You, you're ra- and they're raising an indictment against Moses. They're literally accusing him of murder by hunger. You brought us out into this wilderness so that we can die from hunger. He's lit- they're literally trying to charge Moses with attempted homicide. Death by hunger. This is what's happening in the text. And Moses is telling them that you think you're fighting against your leader. You ain't fighting against your leader. Your complaints are really against God. That leader is just God's instrument. But you don't want to complain against God because you don't have the audacity to do that. So you'll complain to whoever you've put in God's seat. And oftentimes, we we shift blame when really what's going on is just a mirror of what's going on in our hearts. You mad at your pastor, 
but really you're mad at your father. But I, I wouldn't dare approach that, approach him and say anything to him. So I'll just get at this guy. I'm going to yell on my wife. I'm going to yell on my husband. Really, you mad at your boss. Ooh, these kids going to get with that when I get home. But really, for weeks, you've been working up anger against the people at your job. But your kids are an easy target. Oftentimes, what you're complaining about is not about the person you're complaining to. Sometimes it just means that you have dissatisfaction happening in your own heart. There's dissatisfaction with God in our complaining. And let me tell you this in case you didn't know, complaining is sinful. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling. Do everything without complaining. Because if you are constantly complaining, what you're really saying is, is I'm really dissatisfied with God. Constant critique and constant complaining. I can't stand my job. I can't stand these kids. I can't stand my coworkers. I can't stand my family. I can't stand nobody. I can't stand anything. Really? Nothing? You don't like anybody? Is it that bad? So God didn't do nothing for you. You know, when he says, let everything that have breath praise the Lord, he didn't qualify it. Let everything that have breath that have a perfect life praise the Lord. But he's saying, turn that complaining into gratitude. And even though they complain, I want you to see the grace and the mercy of God. God still comes to them in the cloud of glory, and he meets with the people. He shows them his presence in the glory cloud. If you look at verses 9 through 14, he provides for them quail that came once a year, but gives them manna to eat. They have this bread that falls down from the sky. They don't even know what it is. And so what it is actually means manna. If you say manna, it means what is. They don't even know what it is, so it's called manna. But it's like these little frosted flakes just fell out of the sky. That is a childhood dream of mine. Like raining frosted flakes? For real? Yo, Tony the Tiger is making it rain on us. This is amazing. And I'm the, I was the type of kid, I would eat my frosted flakes dry. Don't act like I'm the only person that ate cereal at night. Don't do that. Don't act like I'm the only person that ate cereal after 10 o'clock, after 10 a.m. Don't do that. And it's raining this. This this, they don't know what it is. Not just one day, but God fed them for 40 years. And you know what they did? Complained. They constantly complained. And God did not respond to their complaining. God responded in spite of their complaining. Look at the mercy of God. Look at at the mercy and the goodness of God. This is God's grace and mercy on full display. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. God gave them what they did not deserve, food and water. That's his grace. God did not give them what they did deserve, death. That's his mercy. This is what God does for them. 
but by making them long for food and water, God was simply testing them. He was not trying to kill them. God was testing them to sanctify them. God was using the difficult times to bring them closer and to bring them in a deeper relationship with him. I want to read this quote to you from J.I. Packer. It's a beautiful quote, and he describes the sanctification process. God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually, even while our bodies waste away. To live with your thorn uncomplainingly, that is, sweet, patient, and free in heart to love and help others, even though every day you feel weak. That's true sanctification. It is true healing for the Spirit. It is a supreme victory of grace. And this is what God is doing in the wilderness. God is removing their self-sufficiency and independence. God is removing their self-sufficiency and teaching them God dependency. He's cleaning them of the idea that they can work their way out of whatever situation they find themselves in. And for us, this is a picture of us, that we try to work our way into something and out of something. But salvation is not by works, it's by grace. It is by grace and God alone. Only God can save us. And only God can feed them water where it's bitter and give them food where there is no food. And really for us, we see this as a picture of our spiritual reality. Because more than food, you know what they needed? They needed God. And more than food, you know what we need? We need God. But Israel could never pass this test. They kept failing, just like we do. Forgetting what God had done and not able to come to the conclusion that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But thank God. The grace of God is not contingent on our failures, but on the finished work of Christ. For where we have failed, Jesus has gone into the same place in the wilderness and passed the test. You don't believe me? Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4. Look what happens with Jesus. The, then Jesus was led into the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, guess what Jesus was? Hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, hey, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Get outside of the will of God. Do whatever you got to do to make it happen for yourself. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where would Jesus get that from? Jesus gets that from Deuteronomy 8, verse two, verses 2 through 3. And this is Moses recounting what happened to uh, Egypt, uh, Israel in the wilderness. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you vanity 
to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is Moses talking about? He's just simply recounting Exodus chapter 16. Jesus reaches back to it. And so this is a call for us to go deeper in God. So when we have these detours in life and we don't know what's happening and we don't understand it and we can't explain it, and it seems that we're lacking in some area. This is God testing us. This is God taking us on a detour by design so that we would go deeper in him. What area of your life or what thing in your life that God is inviting you in today to go deeper? And the whole point is this. God wants us to go deeper so that we would depend and trust him. He is teaching Israel how to trust God. Would you really trust God if he gave you all the details today about what's happening? Would there really be any need to tr for trust? Would it be any need for faith? If God told you everywhere he's taking you and he's going to tell you every turn and tell you what's going to happen and how long it's going to last and when you're going to leave, would you really need to depend on him? You would wait it out without entering into a relationship. But when God doesn't give us all the details, this is not punishment. This is an invitation to come closer. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 25, and I'm almost done. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't your life more than food and the body more than clothing? God is everything that we need. And lastly, I'll say this. John's gospel record these seven signs, miracles that Jesus did. And in John 6, he records the fourth and fifth signs. The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000. And then the fifth sign was your personal favorite. Jesus walks on the water. No, your personal favorite is the water to wine. I'm sorry. That's the one. He was like, if he comes back, he's got to do that water to wine thing. But he does this. And then Jesus says something interesting. He actually has a direct comment on Exodus 16. And here's what Jesus says in John 6, 32 through 35. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. And here's what Jesus says. You're not actually looking for physical bread. You weren't actually looking for real water. I am the bread of life. You were looking for me. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. What he's saying is this. When you lean on me and depend on me, you eventually realize that I was always 
everything that you needed. So Jesus takes God, takes them on this detour through the wilderness to disciple them into greater dependence on him. And I want to say this to you today, wherever you are in your life, in your journey with God, wherever you are, if it is hard, if it is difficult, if there there are questions that are unanswered, if there there are things you're wondering about, when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? I had all of these plans and now I'm here. I thought I would be here sooner. I thought I would have this happen for me and none of this has happened. I had my own expectations and people had expectations for me and where I should be and what I should accomplish and what my relationship status should be and how much money I should have and what my title should be and how many degrees I should have, all of these things. And he's saying, Man, that ain't punishment. I'm not sleep at the wheel. If you are in me, these detours are intentional because I'm discipling you and training you and teaching you that I am everything that you need. Maybe you are here today and your goal is to accomplish as much as you want to accomplish Maybe your goal today is to live your best life. But let me tell you something. You don't want your best life. You want the life that God has for you. Because throughout the journey, you'll realize that nothing else will satisfy you. Marriage is good, but marriage doesn't satisfy you like God will. Oh, if I just can make this, this money, if I, could, if I just have, if I make X amount of money, I'll be straight. No, you won't. You'll be crazy. If God doesn't get Egypt out of you, you will get that X amount of dollars and act like you never met God. If God brings you into that relationship that you've been praying for and hoping for and fantasizing about, if he brings you into that, you're going to leave Jesus. And you're going to look at the throne of your heart. You're going to say, all right, Jesus, here, and put somebody else there. But if he could just get your heart to the place where you live to depend on him, then maybe your wilderness experience will take four weeks or four months, not 40 years. And so this is an invitation to trust God. And if you've been complaining, repent and put your trust in Jesus for your life. But the detours are designed to take us deeper. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.